Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. I like to think of second through fourth grades as my childhood golden years. Three idyllic years we lived out on a farm near the small town of Shafter in the Central Valley of California. Surrounded by vineyards and almond groves, a, a boy had, like myself, had plenty of room to roam with my dog, Blue. Even school has positive memories for me during that time as I attended a little country school. We had small class sizes and lots and lots of kickball. Everything I could have longed for. The golden years. Boy, was I in for a shock when in the summer of my fifth grade year, our family moved across the country to a former booming steel town outside of Pittsburgh called McKeesport. Now, I notice that some of you are making the hmm or the hmm. Um, just watch the news, and McKeesport is sure to pop up. Once a thriving city, McKeesport had fallen on hard times and, and was a hard and is a hard place. And my father had been called to serve as the rector of the downtown church, St. Stephen's Episcopal Church. Needless to say, not many people were moving into McKeesport during those years, and real estate was not much of an issue finding a house. It was a shock to the system. Perhaps the biggest shock, however, was entering Cornell Middle School. Large, loud, rough. In fact, my first week of school, one of my fellow fifth grade students punched a teacher and broke her arm, and I realized I am not in Shafter anymore. <laughs> but as I reflected upon this, I, I think it was my first real exposure to the notion of enemies, which is to say that there were people who headed out for me, which I couldn't quite understand, who desired to cause me pain, such that navigating the hallways and especially my walk home became something like out of that old video game Frogger. You know, I'm just trying to make it through unscathed. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. I encountered enemies. I appreciated the uh, front cover as a chess player of this Psalm 37. As we've noted through the, the, this summer, the Psalter deals with a great many of issues that we face as human beings. And tonight, Psalm 37 helps us to address the real human problem of enemies. David opens, fret not yourself because of the ungodly, neither be envious of those who are evildoers. David knew something about enemies, didn't he? whether it was the Philistines, or King Saul, or goodness, even at the end of his life, his own son, Absalom. He endured many trials from those who sought his demise. And, and as the psalm also explores, David certainly knew the frustration of watching those who take advantage and prey on others seemingly thrive and get ahead. 
The wicked flourish and the righteous struggle and suffer. You ever feel like that? Now, before I get to the way of peace that the psalm directs us, I think it's worth briefly, because I can only do it briefly, but briefly noting the temptations that we face when confronted with enemies. So if I were to ask you, when someone comes against you or when you see the wicked seemingly flourish, what is your reaction? What are the temptations that you face? Well, well, certainly there is a temptation to harbor bitterness, isn't there? The sour spirit that, that eats away at us from the inside. That would be one reaction. Another would be anger, to lash out in response. Oh, yeah, well, let me show you. And if we can't lash out against that person, the anger could sometimes be directed toward those around us who who may be entirely innocent. But the anger finds its way out. Or another could be envy, a jealousy that, uh, that turns us green when others seem to get ahead in doing wrong. Well, we're who trying to do right. We, we just can't seem to get a break. We don't get the promotion. We don't get the popularity. We don't get the acknowledgement. Now, the issue with all of these is that they threaten to undo us from the inside, don't they? They, they, they can eat us up. And the enemy may not even know about it. And yet we can become obsessively taken so that we're eaten from within and facing struggles from the outside. But Psalm 37 directs us to a better way. The way that David describes is abundant peace even when confronted by enemies. How do we avoid harboring bitterness and nursing grudges? How do we let go of anger? How do we not fret and become, uh, become envious? Well, in the psalm, David directs us to look in two directions. He bids us to look up, and he bids us to look forward. And those are the two points I'd like to flesh out. Looking up, looking forward. First, notice all the times that this psalm directs our gaze and our hearts Godward. I'll just read some of them. Put your trust in the Lord and do good. Delight yourself in the Lord. Commit your way unto the Lord. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently for the Lord. The upshot is that the answer we are given is to get our eyes off of the wicked and even off of ourselves and onto the Lord, trusting him, committing our way to him. And as I've studied, I think it all falls under a broader category called meekness. Meekness when dealing with our enemies. When I was studying this psalm early on, I noticed something I had never recognized before. Look at verse 11 with me. I never saw this before. It reads, But the meek-spirited shall possess the land and shall be refreshed with an abundance of peace. Now let me ask you, does that sound familiar from anywhere else in the scriptures? And if you're thinking of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, 
gold star. And if you're not, don't worry about it. You have it now. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It comes right from Psalm 37. Never saw it. Blessed are the meek. Now, if you're like me, there are times where I get confused by this word meekness. And then there are times where, Jesus, could you not like, give me some more about what the meekness actually looks like? Because in my mind, I think of meek, you know, I'm, I'm already kind of, as I'm thinking of the mind, making the, the motions of kind of going shriek and shrivel. And, and, and meek has entirely bad rap. But Jesus says, blessed are the meek. So I want to kind of recapture this word for us a bit. What is meekness? And, and I, what I want to do is I want to try to put it on the ground for us from a story about the meekest man in all of the Old Testament. And you might not even think meekness and Old Testament go together. But there is a man in the Old Testament called the meekest man upon the face of the earth. It's probably not who you're thinking. In the book of Numbers, sometime well after he had led the Israelites out of Egypt, Moses marries a woman from this country of Cush. I, I don't know why. We're not entirely told why. But Miriam and his brother Aaron are irate about this. They're completely scandalized that Moses married this Cushite woman. And they make no bones and they let him know about it. And not only that, they go so far as to launch a rebellion against him. They say, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Can he speak through us also? And, and, and it's mutiny on the bounty. And the scriptures say in the midst of that, God was highly displeased with them. And then we get a little verse in Numbers 12. And it says, now Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Do you think of Moses as meek? I, I don't. He's the one who killed an Egyptian out of anger. He led sheep through the wilderness, facing all kinds of dangers. He's the one who stood up to Pharaoh, let my people go. He's the one who led a group of over a million people through the desert for 40 years. That doesn't quite sound like meekness to me. He's a tough guy. And yet he's the one who, as he walked and looked to the Lord, became meek. Which doesn't mean weak, but rather points to us the strength of one who relies on and trusts in God. Meekness is the man or the woman who takes off their shoes and kneels before the burning bush. And yet stands on behalf of the oppressed before the powerful of the world. And yet, when he's confronted by his sister-in-law and his brother, when he and his wife are insulted, he doesn't lash out. His authority's challenged. He doesn't fight back. He looks upward. And he does exactly what we find in Psalm 37. He trusts in God. He commits his way to God. He refrains from anger. He still and patiently waits for the Lord, who in his time does act. Because as the story proceeds, God calls a meeting with the three. See you in my office. 
And in no uncertain terms, he rebukes Aaron, rebukes Miriam, puts down the rebellion, and then for good measure, Miriam gets a little dose of leprosy, which she has to deal with for seven days. God dispenses justice on Moses' behalf, and Moses in his meekness is protected from the anger and vitriol that could undo him from within. God works on Moses' behalf, which, which brings me to the second direction that this psalm points us, which we are to look up and we are to look forward. When confronted with the unrighteous or when the wicked seem to prosper, David calls us to remember the long view. And I think he has to remind himself of this often, the way that we have to remind ourselves of this often, because we can forget, can't we? So over and over again in this passage, we are reminded that God is the righteous judge and he shall make all things right. So again, consider the wicked shall be dried up like grass and be withered even as the green herb. Or the evildoers shall be rooted out. Or kind of my favorite one, yet a little while and the ungodly shall be clean gone. You shall look for them in their place and they won't be there. Or the ungodly have their, drawn out their sword, they've bent their bow to cast down the poor and the needy, to slay those who walk upright, but their sword shall go through their own heart, and their bow shall be broken. It shall come back upon them when they walk in injustice. The message comes through loud and clear, God is not mocked. He shall vindicate his people and all shall be well, and all shall be well, and all manners of things shall be well. So we are called to look forward to that day. Now, I did mention Moses and his meekness earlier, but there's one who was meeker still, who looked not only upward, but also forward, and then took it even deeper still. Peter describes Jesus in the grasp of his enemies there upon the cross like this. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. In fact, he even from the cross, as he's being nailed there, prays for his enemies. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He prays for those persecuting him. But here's the good news of it all. Jesus didn't suffer that for his friends. He suffered for his enemies. Paul tells us, while we were still enemies. He doesn't wait until we're kind and good to God, following and obedient. He comes to us while we are in the midst of our ugliest, seemingly unlovable. While you were yet an enemy of God, Jesus did not retaliate. He did not harbor bitterness. He did not execute God's justice and judgment against us. Rather, in meekness, he bore our sin in his body on the tree so that enemies could be made friends. 
That's what the cross does. That's what Jesus has done. He has turned an enemy into a friend. That's what he's made you, so that you are forgiven, accepted, friends with God. Look, I, look, I realize Psalm 37, it sounds easy. <laughs> look up and look forward. Uh, but I'm not so naive to think that it is. I, I, it seems impossible when we are confronted with, with enemies who are against us or put us down or who wouldn't do us. The only way that I can see that empowers us to look upward, to look forward, to, to in fact love our enemies is to recognize that God is entirely for you and he loves you and he holds you secure in his hands. And then the miraculous happens. People are empowered to take the road of peace. I'd like to close with a story that I think is the best illustration of this that I know in all of literature. Back in seminary, I read a great book entitled Catherine Furzay by the British author Mark Rutherford. In this novel, we meet uh, a young Englishman. His name Tom Catchpole. He's a simple, uneducated man, but he's a faithful Christian touched by the gospel of Christ. And he's a hardworking, reliable employee to Mr. Furzy. Then there's Orchid Jim, arrogant, dishonest, spiteful. And as it turns out, in his hatred of Tom Catchpole, Orchid Jim frames him for stealing from their employer. He, he, he plants some money on him and frames him. And despite Tom's claims of innocence and his long track record of honesty and uprightness, Tom is falsely accused, he's condemned, and his life is shattered and put into ruins. He loses his job, he's rejected by all, he's held in scorn by everyone in the town. His life is in tatters for months. And Orchid Jim just gets a promotion and seems to be going right on his way. But several months go by, and one day we meet Orchid Jim by the river, convincing a small barge owner to take him across the, the swollen river. And as he's about to board, Tom Catchpole arrives, also to get on the same little boat. Orchid Jim puts on the show, I'm not riding with that thief. But the boat owner says, well, either get on or get off, but I'm leaving. So Orchid Jim goes, takes his seat at the stern. Tom sits in the bow, bow, and, and the boatman takes the skulls and, and off they head across the swollen river. They make their way up across, and as they're coming into the landing area, Jim stands up with a hook to kind of catch a tree to try to you know, slow the momentum a bit. And in the process, the boat keeps going, and Jim splashes into the water. Sinks like a stone, the guy can't swim a lick. Sinking down into the, 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 the darkness, he, he manages to somehow get to the surface, catch a gasping breath, and go back under. His doom is nigh, when all of a sudden he feels a hand grabbing him and pulling his head to the surface, holding them until they get to the shore. It's Tom, seeing Jim about to drown, takes his enemy and saves him. 
They get to the shore and they get out of the, uh, uh, Jim gets out of the water. He's, he's soaking wet. And the, the boatman says, that's a narrow squeak for you, Mr. Jim. If it hadn't been for Mr. Cashpole, you'd be in another world this time. Jim was perfectly sensible, but his eyes were just fixed on Tom. Strange, steady stare. Hadn't you been better moving and getting out of those wet clothes, the boatman said? Still, he did not stir. Then at last, without a word, he turned around and slowly walked away. That's a rum customer, said the boatman. He might have at least thanked us, and he hasn't even paid me. However, I shouldn't forget it next time I see him. Tom made no reply. He reached into his pocket and gave the boatman a double fare. One for him, one for Jim. And went away across the meadow. Continuing on to the town, avoiding the main street as he always had to as much as possible. As Jim, he went home, changed his clothes, went out again. He walked up and down the street until he finally met Tom. Mr. Catchpole, he said, will you come along with me? There was something of an authority in his tone that, that made Tom want to obey, but forbade all fear. So Tom followed him in silence, and they went to the home of the employer, Mr. Furzay. They go upstairs, Jim first, Tom behind him, come into the dining room where Mr. and Mrs. Furzy are sitting there. What's the meaning of this? Mrs. Furzy says. Mrs. Furzy said, Jim, will you please excuse me and allow me to speak this once, please? He stood up. Mr. Furzy, Mrs. Furzy, you, Mr. Catchpole, what you see before you is the biggest liar that ever was and one that deserves to go to hell if any man ever did. Everything against Mr. Catchpole was all trumped up. He never took the money. It was me who put the sovereign in his pocket. I was tempted by the devil and, and by as the Lord has had mercy on me and, and has saved my body and he saved my soul this day. I can't speak no more. But if here I am, if I'm to be locked up and sent away as I deserve. Never, said Tom. You say never, Mr. Catchpole. Very well, then. On my knees, I ax as your pardon, and you won't see me again. Jim actually knelt down. May the Lord forgive me. And do you forgive me, Mr. Catchpole, for being such a... Jim was about to use a familiar word, but checked himself and contented himself with one which is blasphemous, yet but also orthodox, Forgive me for being such a damned sinner. He rose, walked out, left East Thorpe that night, and nothing was heard of him for years. Then there came news from East Thorpe, a man who had gone to America. The Jim was at work in Pittsburgh, maybe even McKeesport. <laughs> and he was also a preacher of God's word. And that by God's grace, he had brought hundreds to a knowledge of their Savior. What's Rutherford tapping into here? <laughs> He's tapping into the miraculous power of undeserved love to transform the human heart. It's happened to many of you. It's happened to me. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us so that we could be friends. It's the love that Jesus has shown to us. 
And by his grace, he empowers us to show it to others. My friends, we live in a fractured, polarized world in which it seems more and more as Christians, we we feel under attack or that the ungodly thrive. But may our Lord protect us from envy, bitterness, anger that could eat us from within. And may he cause us to look up, to look forward, and to demonstrate a, a bit of the love that we have received, even to our enemies. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your